Father, we thank you so much for your provision and your goodness to us. We pray now that you would just undertake for this time of study tonight. We pray that Christ may be glorified in that which is done. Most of all, Lord, we, we just want the manifestation of the glory of our Savior to be that which is our present experience. And we'll be careful to give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, ever faithful Mr. Peebles is coming with some uh, visitors' packets. And if you're a visitor here tonight, he sure would like to have you raise your hand. And uh, that way uh, he'll give you a little something that might be of interest to you. I think would be helpful in understanding uh, what kind of a flock you have wandered into tonight. We're glad to let people know what we believe and where we stand and we praise the Lord for the visitors that He sends to us, and some of them uh, get in the habit and keep coming back. We hope you do as well. Now, I want you to pray with me about a couple of things tonight, will you? First of all, pray that my voice will hold out. And uh, I've been getting all kinds of uh, treatments from people. Everybody, you know, you just, you're such, when you're a public person, you know, you get all this. So somebody just gave me another little something to put in here, said I'm supposed to get 20% of my voice back by taking this little thing. So I don't know, it might uh, do all kinds of things. I might be in better voice when I get done than when I started. I don't know. But, uh, so if you hear something rattling around in my mouth, you'll know it's that special pill. Um, but uh, pray that uh, the voice will hold out. And then pray another, another uh, thing. We, uh, we generally don't schedule our speaking responsibilities any more than we can help. In other words, try to uh, cover a certain amount. But um, we've kind of got our backs to the wall a little bit here. Um, we, want to, we want to complete this phase, the second phase of our discipleship study, tonight and next week. And then we, we plan uh, to have a very special program the following week. We're, it's not confirmed yet, so I won't announce it. But we're, we're trusting that the Lord's going to give us a, a very special time just for a break in between the, two, the, the three, well, phase two and phase three of our discipleship program. And I've been working for some time on the development of a how-to plan for discipling. And uh, we'll spend a week or maybe two in talking about the preparation of the discipler. But then the major amount of time will be how-to steps. In fact, we'll outline for you, giving you complete notes and all of the rest of it, we'll outline for you how to, after you've won someone to Christ, uh, what you could teach them in, in a session, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, two hours session, uh, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, so on, for about ten appointments that you could have with this person whereby you could lead him from a babe in Christ to a certain level of maturity in Christ in that ten-week period, figuring that you'd meet with him once a week. Assignments that he can do, verses that he can memorize, things that he can put into his own life uh, so that a person can move from uh, accepting Christ as Savior through the assurance of salvation uh, to the matter of the filling of the Holy Spirit, and several other steps right down the line so that he learns how to live the Christian life. I think this is very vital. And um, we, want to, we want to be able to put something in your hands. And you don't have to follow the way we set it out. We want to put something in your hands that will be a usable tool so that you will be able to actually, with all the inexperience you may have, will be able to, to work through the various needs and problems that a person will face Tell him how to face suffering. Tell him how to face various things that bring pressure into his life. How to have a devotional life. And I'm sure we're going to learn a lot in our, ourselves as we do this. But we are going to make a change. Now, we've been keeping the notes a little bit behind the messages. And we're going to bring the notes up to date next week so that you'll have all of the notes for Phase 2 as well as Phase 1 in your notebook. And then, when we start this new phase... We're going to give you the notes week by week so that you have them, you can follow along as we study. And that way you'll be able to, to really get these things fixed in your mind, make your own notations, 
and I think we're going to have a lot of fun in that last session. We hope to complete that uh, by summertime when the summer programs begin. So then next year, new series. All right? That's just a little preview. And so we've got a lot of work to do yet tonight. We're talking again about a number of things in the book of Acts that has to do with the matter of suffering. Excuse me, that has to do with the matter of discipleship. The particular subject that we want us to tackle tonight as much as we can is the subject of the disciple and suffering. You'll recall from our phase one studies where we defined discipleship and gave various aspects of discipleship as Christ discipled his men in the Gospels. We talked about the preponderance of material that Jesus Christ gave relative to the fact that suffering would be a part of the lot of those that were believers and even disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an essential part, really, of being a disciple of the Lord. Because if discipleship denotes identification with the Lord Jesus, and it does, then that means identification with his sufferings as well. Indeed, we know that the Apostle Paul longed to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the koinonia, the sharing in common with his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, it's absolutely astounding when you realize that the Apostle Paul, who had already at this point suffered a great deal, would actually pray in his prayers that he might be identified more fully with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. It's especially astounding when you realize how many people are praying that they might escape the suffering. In fact, we discover that that uh, where God has, has given a point of obedience, a matter of, of uh, direct counsel to us, that often when there are consequences, that people want to run away from those consequences rather than be obedient to the Lord. Somehow or another, somebody in this country has marketed successfully the idea that to be a Christian means the end of suffering. There are a lot of people that think that if they're right with God, walking in fellowship with Christ, that suddenly all of their problems are solved. And unfortunately, that is not a biblical truth. Now, the Bible does teach that there is a point of time where a person's suffering cease. And that comes at the point of death or at the time that Jesus Christ comes back again, whichever occurs first. But the Bible makes it very clear that suffering is a part of what we face in the Christian life. And we've told you many times that there are numerous categories of suffering, numerous things that cause suffering, I should say. Basically, though, just two categories. There is the category of suffering that we deserve because we're sinning. And there, there are, is as well a matter of suffering just because it's a part of the function of the Christian life. You do suffer because you're a Christian. You suffer persecution on one hand. On the other hand, you suffer a number of, of indignities that the Lord allows to come into your life because you live in a sinful world and because the Lord wants to mature you and, and conform you to the image of Christ. And he knows that under tension, under stress, under suffering, you grow best. And you see, God takes the long look. He looks into eternity and he sees as some in the New Testament have been able to testify, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall follow hereafter. And it's always been interesting to me to note that in 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about the suffering of Christ. And then it says, likewise ye wives. Likewise ye wives what? Be submissive to your husbands even when the husband is not doing what he ought to do, even when he's not living for the Lord, even when he abuses you in some way. 
If Christ could suffer that way, leave us an example that we should follow in his steps. If he could be reviled and not revile again. If he, when he suffered, committed himself to the hands of the of one that does all thing right, things righteously, so can you. Then it says, likewise ye husbands. In other words, it is making a comparison. And previous to that passage, it's talking about the slave-master relationship. And so you see people that run away from suffering are running away from God's best for their life because it includes the matter of suffering. Now, we just have to understand that if you're going to be a Christian and if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in particular, it is going to involve being identified with Jesus Christ in his suffering. He suffered, we suffer. He suffered the worst possible kind of indignity. The amazing conflict that goes on in a crucifixion is something that is amazing because a person has an involuntary reflex. You can't commit suicide by holding your breath. You're, there's something about your body that will respond to trying to, to survive. And people uh, will hold their breath in trying to do this until their lungs almost seem like they're going to burst, but they... Even if they, if, if they faint in the process, their voluntary reflexes bring their breath back to them. And Christ on the cross, one of the reasons that the suffering was so great was because of the terrible pain. And yet, the body responded by lifting itself to catch breath. It was Most people that died on the cross died from suffocation. And what they would have to do is they would have to, to, to push their feet, which are nailed, push against that nail in order to lift themselves to catch a breath. And they would do this sometimes for days on end. They would want to die, but something in them wouldn't allow them to quit pushing. And they would push against those nails, and they would, they, they, they would break the legs so they no longer could push. And then they would suffocate. That's the reason they broke the legs. And you see... Christ suffered that kind of a death, which really was the most agonizing form of torture known at that period of time. And he did it and never argued, never talked back, but said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He willingly walked into that. And then he says, he left us an example we should follow in his steps. That is, we should follow in his steps in our response to suffering as well. We're identified with him in his suffering. Now, this kind of identity was very, very evident in the book of Acts. And the people did suffer. But before we turn there, let's look at several verses. John chapter 16, first of all. Several verses just to review this concept of suffering in the Gospels. 16.33 These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Now you see, the peace that Christ offered did not mean the absence of suffering, but rather meant the matter of really pressure. Now once again, remember that the word, the Greek word for, for tribulation is, the, the Latin word is the tribula. Tribula was an instrument that was used to beat out the grain and the the wind then would take the chaff away. And that's where we get our English word, tribulation. But the Greek word was something altogether different. It was a form of torture, where they would lay on the chest of man a weight and then ask for a confession. If he didn't confess, they would add weight. And then they'd add more weight. Now the, the ribs are beginning to bend. And then they'd add a little more weight. Now they crack. If you ever had a broken rib, how would you like to have a dozen of them? And now they lay more weight, and he begins to suffocate. And they lay more weight until the life is crushed out of him. The word tribulation is pressure. It is the weight. It is the pressure. When, and in this world, you're going to have pressure. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Look at John 15 and verse 20. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me... They will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. 
There is an identification with Christ in the success of the gospel, and there is also identification with Christ in his suffering. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. I have given them thy word, he prays to his Father, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Identification with Christ as to our citizenship. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. Don't allow Satan to win a victory in their life. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them, hagias, set them apart through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. We already saw a bit about that. Now move down through that text and notice in verse 21, the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, the father the child, the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when, that is delivered, really, but when they persecute you in the city, flee into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now even those that were followers of his in this secular sense, that is in the, in the Jewish sense, following him in his earthly ministry, these individuals were sent out for a specific mission. And they were told, because of your identity with me, there will be persecution. All right, now go to the book of Acts, if you will. And uh, let me give you a, a brief survey, see if we can cover some ground and then come back and see some specific things. You can kind of follow along, though I'm not going to be referring primarily to uh, too many verses. First of all, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, we have the first signs of trouble. Peter has healed the lame man. And Peter and John, as a result, are thrown into prison. The next day they're brought to court, and they are threatened. Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. The healing of the lame man brought glory to God, which, of course, was the thing that they were searching for in the first place. All right, in Acts 5 through 7 now, there's more trouble. In verse 40 of chapter 5, it tells us that they were beaten and commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. It says they, they called the apostles and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then in chapter 7, verses 57 through 60, we have the first martyr of the church. And it says they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city, so as not to defile the city, of course, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. They stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Wasn't that the spirit of Christ? And when he had done this, he fell asleep. In Acts chapter 8, the storm breaks through in full fury. Stephen's martyrdom marked the beginning of an intense persecution. So it says in the opening verses of chapter 8, Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church a brutal, sadistic kind of cruelty, uh, entering, entering into every house and hailing or dragging forcibly, literally, the word suro, dragging forcibly men and women, committed them to prison. All right, so there's an intense persecution. But it, notice what happened. They, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, in the 12th chapter of Acts and verse 1, there is a resumption of the persecution. Uh, remember what happened subsequently. The, the Saul of Tarsus was struck down the Damascus Road. 
he came to a knowledge of Christ, and there was peace for a time. Because Saul was the major persecutor, there was peace in the church for a time. And it's over in chapter 12, when the persecution arises, now in the time of Herod the king. About that time, Herod the king stretching forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And so they're facing a tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, series of persecution. Actually, there are in all five major persecutions that are found in these first in the first 13 chapters. And that doesn't even begin to talk about the other persecutions that were following in Acts 13 and following where the Apostle Paul began his ministry. We're just touching on that which is in these first 12 chapters. And so therefore, there's a tremendous amount of suffering that came to these individuals. I want you to see three verses of Scripture and set some perspective. And we want to go back over those passages and see uh, in sort of a categorical way how this is laid out for us. First of all, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For unto you it is given as a gift. Now, it's part of our gift. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, that's only half of it, but also to suffer for his sake. The pre verse previous tells us we're not to be terrified by our adversaries. We're not to be afraid. We're not to fear. But we are to be a, a conscious of the fact that we indeed will suffer persecution. Look at Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, and verse 30. Peter came to the Lord and says, Lord, we've left all who followed you. What have we got coming to us? The Lord says, if you've left house and brother and sisters, father, mother, wife, or children, lands for my sake in the Gospels, he says, you're going to receive, verse 30, and hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Do you like that verse? You've already read ahead. You don't like it, do you? <laughs> all right. He tells us we're going to receive a hundredfold all that we've invested with persecutions. He promises He's going to reward us. We're not going to give up anything for Christ, but what He is going to compensate, but it's going to be accompanied by persecutions. And then, of course, just to give us further assurance in the age to come, eternal life. Look at again now at Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, verse 22. The Apostle Paul having been stoned in Lystra, now is going out and ministering to the various churches, and uh, has gone again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And here's his message. Confirming, there's that episterizo, we've seen that before, stabilizing the souls of the disciples, and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And, what's the rest of the message? That we must not may, but must, through much persecution, much tribulation, philipsis, oppressing, enter into the kingdom of God. It's part of the game. You want to be a disciple of Christ? Christ didn't try to fool you. One of the demands of discipleship is to suffer for his sake. All right. Now, I want to give you three things. I want to give you the reasons, as we can see them categorically, the reasons for persecution, the realization, that is what form did it take, and the results of these persecutions. I want to cover that in the next half hour. All right? The reason for persecution. Go to Acts chapter 4, verse 2. Acts chapter 4. And verse 2. I want to give you a number of reasons why these people were persecuted. Acts 4.2 simply says, being grieved 
being grieved. And uh, the word diroponeo uh, that is used here is uh, the, the word that means indignant. It means to be sore troubled. It's more than simply being grieved. It is, a, it is an intense indignity. They feel it's a, it's a great injustice, a great insult. Being grieved, what? That they taught the people. Now that's the first thing. They taught the people. Let's not go any further for a moment. Let's remember who it is that persecuted them. You notice that the priests were involved. It says, as they spoke unto the people, that's who they taught, the priests, that would be Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, Alexander, and others of their number. Some of those are named down there in verse 6. And then it says, the uh, captain of the temple. Now, the, there were 24 bands of Levites that were given the responsibility of guarding the temple. And they would do this in course, that is, taking turns over a period of time. And the, the person who was their leader was called the captain of the temple. And therefore, that's who he is. He's a Levite. All right? Then it says, and the Sadducees. Now, we see a lot about the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, you remember. And then it also says in verse 5 that the rulers, that would be the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes, by the way, the chief priests would be the liberals, the uh, elders would be the moderates, and the scribes, or the Pharisees, they, they would both, the scribes had to be Pharisees, would be the legalists. You've got all kinds of a mixture here of, uh, of theological persuasion. And they're all together, and they're incidentally the same ones that persecuted Jesus Christ. If you go back to John chapter 18 and 19 and go through and see the people that participated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you'll find the same list. So it's the same bunch. Some 50-odd days later, after Christ had risen from the dead, here they are still after the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was because of their identity with the teacher that they were persecuted. They were teaching what Christ taught. Now the second thing is in the latter part of verse 2, where it says that they preached through, that is literally in the case of, in the case of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. It wasn't that they were teaching resurrection generally, though undoubtedly they were applying it. They were teaching specifically that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, had risen bodily, literally, from the dead. Well, why wouldn't they preach it? They had seen him. They knew that he was risen from the dead. The Sadducees, of course, denied the resurrection altogether, so they wouldn't like that message. But they especially are opposed to the concept of Christ rising from the dead, because if he rose from the dead, it proved that there's a resurrection from the dead. The legalists and the liberals, on the other hand, believed in a resurrection... But they denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that would mean that the claims that Christ made were accurate. And so here these individuals were preaching a message that was not popular in any camp of the theologians of that day because they were preaching the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now a third reason is in verse 17 where it says, it spread no further among the people. They said, uh, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us threaten them that they speak henceforth no man in this name. Not only were they teaching the people <clears throat> the way Christ taught, and teaching them, or preaching, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but they were speaking and they were teaching in the name of Jesus. As though Jesus had a tremendous authority, that he was the authoritative one. They were quoting him. They were doing what they did in his name. You look at chapter 5, verse 40. Again, you see this same terminology where it says, And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They didn't tell them they couldn't speak. 
They had the right to any soapbox they wanted. But they could not tolerate them speaking in the name of Jesus. There are many popular people today, you know, that speak about everything from soup to nuts. They can say anything they want, and there is no persecution. Why? They're not speaking on the basis of an absolute authority. They're merely throwing out an opinion. And you see, if that's all we did in our ministry, if all we did was throw out an opinion, then your opinion weighed against my opinion. Every man has a right to his own opinion. No big deal. No persecution. But when we say, thus saith the Lord, there are no options. We are dealing with an absolute truth. Believe you me, we've got a different game. And they were teaching an absolute truth from an absolute authority. They were teaching in the name of Jesus. A fourth reason, Acts chapter 5, verse 28, saying, Did we not strictly command you that you should not teach in his name? There you have that same phrase again, but then notice. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now you see, they had done two things there. They had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine, but the doctrine amounted to the fact that Jesus Christ was unjustly crucified, that he was who he claimed to be, and therefore they were guilty before God, not only of rejecting Jesus Christ, but of actually participating in that which brought about his death. And they could not tolerate such a message. You say, wow, you know, these guys were really being dogmatic, weren't they? I mean, after all, you know, you've got to give a little, don't you? I mean, to accuse these people that were great moralists and great religious leaders, to accuse them of murder, what a terrible thing. In fact, have you noticed that there's been a softening of that attitude in some segments of the church these days? There are some people who, for the sake of, uh, of, of wanting to, to s sort of salve the, and, and, and build the ecumenical movement. What they're saying is, we no longer hold Israel uh, guilty for what was done to Jesus Christ. And there's even the statement that's come out that the Jews were not at all responsible for it. It was the Romans that did it. I don't know how the Romans liked that, but it was the, the pagan Rome that crucified Christ and the Jews are off the hook. That's not the message that was preached. I'm not anti-Semitic. I love God's people. And I pray for Israel that they might be saved. I'll tell you one thing, they'll never be saved if you do not face them with the reality that their forefathers with wicked hands slew the Lord of glory. That is a part of the message to the nation of Israel. You've got to admit it. They've got to come to the place where they admit that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that they stand guilty before God, even as do we, because Christ was crucified. We stand guilty because on that cross he bore our sins. That's a part of the message. But it was not a popular message. It brought about persecution. All right. Acts chapter 6. And verse 10, now the greatest message in all of the book of Acts was preached by a layman. That is recorded message. Stephen was a deacon. He was a layman. He was a server of tables. But he brought one of the clearest discourses on what Jesus Christ did of any of the disciples. He got killed for it. He became the first martyr. But if you look at chapter 6, verse 10, just summing up this message. It says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Did you hear that? They killed him because his message was so pointed. It came clear to their hearts. The word of God just came right ripping across their conscience. And they suddenly felt this tremendous guilt. And the way you get rid of guilt is get rid of the person that made you feel guilty. At least that's what they thought. They didn't realize how the gospel was going to spread by wildfire as a result. And so as a result, they hired men to give false witness against Stephen and ultimately stoned him to death. They did it in a sort of an irrational way. They started out so logically. 
If we can get people to speak against him, then we'll do it. And they did. They came with their false witnesses. But that really didn't, didn't bring the house down. The thing that happened was Stephen just kept on preaching. And finally they rushed at him headlong, stopping their ears. Can you see these guys? Stopping their ears and running after him, taking him, throwing him out of the city and stoning him. They were so religious, you know. They wouldn't want to stone him inside the city. Oh, goodness, no. That'd pollute the city. I mean, that'd be a terrible thing. It was against their law to stone a man inside the city. Aren't they being good, following all the rules and regulations? They murdered this guy outside the city. What a strange reasoning. You look back at chapter 5. There's another reason. I don't know why I put it in different order here, but that's all right. Chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Zeluo is the word for jealousy. They were jealous. That's another reason. Chapter 5, verse 29. And Peter and the other apostles said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Then verse 33. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. That was nothing but conviction. They were under conviction. Another reason for persecution. You realize something? Every time you witness for Jesus Christ, with any degree of success, you take a chance of getting killed for it. Now, if you're a failure, you have nothing to worry about. I mean, if you don't communicate the claims of the gospel clearly, you probably never get killed for the gospel. But when you bring conviction to a heart, that man has to make a choice. And it can bring the kind of terrorism they may counsel, take counsel, how to get you. Maybe not kill you, but at least do something to destroy you. You know, what it does is, if you're an effective witness for Christ, you've got to be very careful about your lifestyle. Because, you see, if they find out that you've been, you know, just shading a little bit on your, your expense account, aha, then they've got the evidence they need to get you fired for what you've done, and boy, will they gloat. And they're going to be looking for it. So you see, if you've got an effective witness and you're bringing people to conviction, the Holy Spirit is using you and bringing people to conviction. You've got to be very careful that you don't slip up somewhere along the way. That's why a lot of people are afraid to witness. It puts their back to the wall. They've got to live up to what they're claiming. But it's a good thing. All right? Moving backwards again. Chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man who was healed standing with them, notice, they could say nothing against it. Now that's one of the biggest reasons for persecution. When men cannot find fault in you. They look and they look and they look at what you do and they're looking for some loophole. And many people have come to Christ and they've said to the person that's led them to the Lord, you know, I finally got to the place where I watched your life and I looked and I suddenly realized one day that you are living up to everything you claimed. And I couldn't say anything against it. How can I argue against the reality that I see in your life? It leaves men befuddled. And then chapter 5, verse 24. And this is the last one. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they were perplexed concerning them. How this would grow. They saw this as a dangerous doctrine. And they began to wonder, is this thing going to really grow? Are people really going to believe this? We've got to do something to stop it. All right, now that is a list of the reasons why in these early chapters persecution began to develop. And in every case, 
It's the kind of situation that we can face if we're an effective witness for Christ. Now, the realization of persecution. And for the sake of time, we've got to kind of move through these rather quickly. Let me give them to you. You'll get them in your notes next week. So if you don't get them all written down, you'll have them with the Scripture references, okay? Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 5, verse 18, they were seized. Chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 18, chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, they were imprisoned. Chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, they were interrogated. Chapter 4, verse verse 17 and 18, chapter 5, verses 28 and 40, they were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus told him, just shut up. In chapter 4, verses verse 17 and 21, they were threatened. In chapter 5, verse 40, they were flogged. See how it's getting more and more intense? Chapter 8, verse 1, they were scattered. Chapter 8, verse 3, they were ravaged. That's the word that's used. 8, verse 3... It says that they, uh, he made havoc of the church. He ravaged the church. Chapter 8, verse 3, they were dragged out of their homes to prison. The word hauling, which is given here, doesn't mean anything to us. It's an old English word that doesn't have much use at all. It's the word surl, surl which simply means to drag forcibly. So they were dragged out of their homes to prison. Historical records tell us that with the women, they would grab them by their long hair and drag them through the streets until it tore the hair out of their heads. It's no fun. Chapter 8, verse 1, it was called a great persecution. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, and then in the Paul's testimony in, in uh, Acts chapter 22 and 26, Acts 22, verses 4, 5, 19, and 20, in Acts 26, 9 through 11, it says that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Paul talked about that in his testimony in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23. Also, as he talked to Timothy, Paul had haunting memories of how he participated in this great persecution. In chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, they hired, so burned as it has in the King James, they hired false witnesses to bring false accusations so you see, there were times uh, where at least the attempt was made of a, of a type of false accusation so that, that they did not even imprison them for the reason uh, of preaching the gospel. They found a false reason. They were suffering in that way. And then in chapter 7, verse 57 and 58, they killed Stephen. That, of course, is, is the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. And then over in chapter 12, and verse 2, we read these words, And he killed, this is uh, Herod, And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The second martyr was James, the first of the apostles to be martyred. Now the first persecution, and if you, you might just want to jot this down, I'm not sure whether it will get in your notes or not. The first persecution begins in Acts chapter 4. The second persecution begins in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Very marked divisions there. The third persecution begins in Acts chapter 6 and verse 9. And the fourth persecution begins in the first verse of Acts chapter 8, where Paul began to take an active part, breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the church, getting papers to go outside the city of Jerusalem to try to find as many Christians as he could 
and bring back. And the fifth persecution under Herod became in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. The first five major persecutions of the early church. So we've given you the reasons why they were persecuted. And we've given you as well the realization of that persecution, threatenings and slaughter and false accusations and murder and the whole scene. Not a very pretty picture. But now let's look at the results of the persecution. You would think, wouldn't you, that with that kind of persecution, that there would be panic and mass defections among the early Christians when the persecution came. But the persecution did not intimidate the disciples. But rather, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. If you've ever had a fire, and you've tried to stamp the fire in where it's highly flammable material, you try to stamp the fire out with your foot, it spreads the fire far more rapidly. The best thing to do is try to confine the fire rather than trying to stamp it out. And you see, they made the mistake in that early church of beginning to try to stamp out the fire. And wherever the fire was stamped out for a brief moment, it spread the coals abroad, and the result was there were many, many people who, who came to know Jesus Christ in the outlying areas. The Great Commission was, begin at Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And like the Tower of Babel, the people had a tendency to draw closely together and to become sort of a, a little end in themselves and not get this missionary vision. God needed to have a missionary vision. And he even used that persecution to spread the people out because wherever the people went, the gospel was spread. It's a marvelous thing when you realize how God used this negative influence to spread the gospel to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth because the persecution and then this conversion of Saul and uh, the peace in the church for a time eventually brought about great missionary activity. What happened was that when the persecution came, it merely underlined the reality of the message. And it set the seal upon the testimony of the early disciples. And they accepted it as an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And one of the great reasons why the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America does not have a higher degree of effectiveness in reaching the lost is because we do not face much in the way of persecution. When under persecution, there is, a, there is an intensification of the message of the disciple. And these people accepted it as a tremendous opportunity. Really four things we could call results. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, uh, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Forgiveness. That was one attitude that was evident, at least in the life of Stephen. A forgiving attitude, like Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So there's one attitude. Look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then verse 4 with it, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and there was a revival in the city of Samaria. So the second thing that was a result 
was fruitfulness. They were not less effective because of persecution. They were more effective. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, could also be referred to in that regard. But many of them who heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. That was right at the beginning of that first persecution. So there was fruitfulness. Then look back at Acts 4 and verse 23 through 31. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, who has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in, that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the nations rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the nations and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy service protection. You see that? Is that what it says? How many have that in their Bibles? Grant unto thy service protection. Lord, stop the persecution so that we can minister more effectively. Was that the attitude? No. The attitude was, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy service that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hands to heal, and signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and so on. Listen. The result of the persecution was a fervency in prayer, a driving of the people to God, but the people were not driven to God so that they might have easement of their persecution. They were driven for God, to God to draw upon His power so that they might be more effective in the proclamation of the gospel. They weren't about to be quiet about that which they had seen and heard. They told those, those officials, we cannot help but speak the things that we have heard. How can we possibly be quiet about something that is so vital and so real? We can't. But they prayed fervently. So fervency in prayer was a very evident thing. Another place that you see the same thing, that fervency in prayer, is over in chapter 12 and verse 5. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing by the church unto God for him. They were praying for Peter. That doesn't tell us what they were praying, but you remember, they weren't expecting him to get out. That's not what they were thinking of. They were praying, probably, that where he was, he would be a witness and a testimony. Of course, you've got to realize that James had just been killed just before this, and so they undoubtedly thought that Peter's life was in jeopardy, and they were praying for him, and God delivered him. So fervency in prayer. But then there's also fervency in witness. If you look back at Acts chapter 4, and verse 31, it says, And they spoke the word of God with boldness, and the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that, that they that any have, had things which he possessed that was his, were his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was a fervency of witness that went forth as a result of the persecution that come upon them. So we have forgiveness, fruitfulness, and fervency, both in prayer and in witnessing. There's one more. Forthrightness. You would think that when you've been thrown in prison for speaking in the name of Jesus, that you would next time talk a little softer, be a little less aggressive, wouldn't you? That didn't happen. In chapter 5, verse 41, we read these words. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They got all excited about the fact that here they had suffered for Jesus. And daily in the temple, and in every house, wherever they had the chance, they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus. Similarly, back in the fourth chapter, in verse 20, we read these words. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
literally in the Greek, it says this, we are not able not to speak. Now they can use double negatives. In English, we can't use them successfully. But it gives great emphasis to the negative. We can't help ourselves. We've got to speak. Chapter 5, verse 29. Chapter 5, verse 29. And Peter and the other apostles answered, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Now they're in court. They're trying to get their, uh, get their bail set. And you've got to say nice things at a time like that, don't you? Well, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. That's not too nice. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be prince and a savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Something you guys don't know anything about is the implication. Boldness, forthrightness in preaching the gospel. Chapter 12. Verse 24 and 25. But the word of God grew and multiplied. You know, it's fascinating. Herod kills James. Peter's thrown in prison. Peter gets out of prison. Herod has a little accident. He... Highly, it says that upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. The people gave a shout, It is the voice of a God and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and died. That's the way Herod ended up. But in contrast to this, the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They took with them John, whose surname was Mark. The next thing we find is the church sends out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, turns all of Europe, upside, all of Asia upside down. Second missionary journey turns all of Europe upside down. The gospel begins to move to the west, and the ministry of the word continues on and on and on. And I've always been fascinated by the fact that when we get clear down there, to Acts chapter 28. It says, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Wait a minute. Does that finish it? Doesn't sound like the end of a story to me. You know why? Because next was Acts 29 and then Acts 30 and Acts 31 and 32 and 33 and 34 and 35 and 36. And through the years, the book of Acts is still being written because nothing has changed. Really, nothing has changed. There have been different people. There have been different kinds of cultures. But if you want to understand the suffering and the disciple, then you want to read two books. Fox's Book of Martyrs and Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs in the Ancient World. Those two books will reiterate for you how people down through history have suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. Because all those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Remember that the early church suffered without fear because they understood that you could not that you could reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall follow. They weren't afraid to die. They weren't afraid to suffer. They weren't afraid to go through all kinds of pressure and persecution because they knew that their suffering was according to the will of God. You want to be a disciple of Christ, you've got to be ready to suffer. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be those that are willing to be suffering saints. Suffering for your honor and for your glory, but suffering as those who have a hope in Christ. Help us not to be careless with our lives, but on the other hand, help us not to try to preserve them either. For we know that if we preserve our life and hoard our life, that we will suffer great loss. But when we surrender our life and donate our life, to the ministry and the cause of Jesus Christ, 
will suffer great reward. And so therefore, we commit our lives to you. And we realize that the life is a temporal one anyway. And there's nothing we can do about preserving it. That's in your hands. But what we can do is invest this life for your glory. Help us to be willing to suffer because we're identified with a suffering Savior. Help us not to be caught up in the popular thought of self-preservation in this day. We pray that we will be those that will be willing to sacrifice and spend and, and be spent for the glory of God. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Good night. Lord bless you. Thanks for praying. My voice held up.